0: Hello and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is leading a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Madeline, and this week, as part of our series on creating healthy discourse online, Divya, Isaiah, Olivia, and I spoke with Kathy Berger, Director of Research at the Dangerous Speech Project at American University. Today, many fear that free speech can go too far and feel as if it should be regulated in some way. But who do we trust to make decisions about what we can say and not say to prevent hate speech? Dangerous speech is a more specific term than hate speech, defined as a speech that can inspire violence. DSP works to find ways to counter dangerous speech without constraining free speech, which we found super interesting and empowering. As we are proponents of ensuring that discourse allows for dissent and representation of different views. Over the past few years, Kathy has been investigating user led counter speech efforts from around the world. She's interviewed over 50 individuals globally and recently completed a digital ethnography of one of our largest groups of counter speakers, which has over 74,000 members currently working to improve online discourse in Sweden. As an anthropologist by training, Kathy brings valuable lenses to this work and ones we are greatly benefited from in this conversation with her. Thank you for joining us.
1: Hi, my name is Isaiah Taylor. I'm currently a high school senior uh, attending school in Queens, New York, and I'm I'm really just interested in hate speech and and how it contributes to the media and how it contributes to um, people in the way that they act in response to hate speech.
0: So Hi, I'm Madeline. Um, I'm a sophomore from Brooklyn, New York, and um, I'm really passionate about cross-partisanship. So um, I'm really looking forward to talking about hate speech and how we can address it to develop a community amongst people that have different, um, that identify as something different and that um, what we can do to take down these boundaries and to unify and to try to understand each other.
2: Hi, everyone. My name is Divya Ganesan. I'm from the Bay Area, California, and I'm a senior in high school. Um, I'm the co-founder of Real Talk, which just like MGP aims to empower students with the skills to really engage in political discourse. And I'm super excited to hear from your perspective about what it means to have dangerous speech, how you regulate that, and how we can empower youth to take part in this as well. So excited to speak today.
3: Yeah. Um, And I am Olivia. I am a high school senior from New York City. And in addition to being on the podcast, I'm also a lead civic fellow um, with New York City programming and the director of outreach and engagement for NGP. And I'm really curious about, you know, the way the the role government plays in what you're doing, because I know you're passionate about user led counter speech. But when can that counter speech kind of be infringement on sovereignty? And then when do other governing bodies have to jump in?
4: Great, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I feel really honored to be here. And those are great questions to think about. Um, My name is Kathy Berger, and I am the director of research at the Dangerous Speech Project. We're an organization based in Washington, DC, and um, our main goal is to study the relationship between Speech and intergroup violence. And then we also study different effective methods to respond to that dangerous and hateful speech so that we can diminish its harmful effects. I've been with the organization about three and a half years um, and I'm an anthropologist by training. So even before I was at the DSP, a lot of my research and my work has really focused on studying how communities can come together to improve their their spaces, right? Um, how they can shift norms in a positive direction um, through things like protest and advocacy. In my doctoral research, I worked with human rights defenders in Ghana who were trying to improve their their neighborhood through human rights and and lots of other methods, but trying to really help those norms shift in their in their local spaces to create healthier communities. And, it, and you know, it's funny because in many ways, I feel like. My work at the Dangerous Speech Project is really similar. We have communities of people coming together, they're online in this case, but they're trying to change things to make their online communities safer and healthier places. So I'm just really happy to be here and talking with you tonight, thanks.
3: Yeah, um, on that note, would you just mind elaborating on the work you're doing at the Dangerous Speech Project?
4: Sure. Since I joined the DSP, a lot of my research has been focused on studying counter speech, which is a term that we use to refer to what people do when they respond to um, hatred when they see it online, Uh, or it can be offline as well, but my work is mostly focused on kind of online counter speech. And again, I said, I'm an anthropologist. And so when I first started studying this topic, what I wanted to do was to talk to people who are doing this work. I've been really lucky, in that I've been able to talk to you know over 50 people involved in different efforts from around the world. Um, and you know, I use the term efforts and campaigns really um, broadly here, where some of them are super glossy PR campaigns that have government funding, um, and you know, very focus-grouped hashtags. Um, and other efforts and campaigns are you know a person who goes to work in a very different job all day and then comes home at night and goes on Twitter and tries their best to respond to the hatred that they see. So I've done lots of interviews with these people to find out what they're trying to do and how they strategize, what are their goals, what are their methods, what's really hard for them um, and what they find to be rewarding in that work.
1: With that being said, um, what, like what do they try to accomplish? Because I know for me, I have like a very hard time understanding. I kind of see it as futile, but that could be me just being a little closed-minded because everybody has their reasons. So
4: yeah, no, no, that's such a good, uh, such a good point. And what's really interesting is that most of the people that I've talked to share your feeling that it's, it's futile to try and change the mind of the person who's posting hatred, right? And I think this is one of the most interesting things that I've found through my research is that when you actually ask people, what are they trying to do? Like who is their audience? Most of them will say, it's actually not that extreme person who's posting racism online. It's not that person at all. It's everybody else who is going to be encountering that kind of back and forth counter speech interaction online. I think this is a really kind of unique quality of online conversation is that it's preserved for a really long time, right? So somebody might see this back and forth, um, this challenging of hatred many months after it actually occurs. And so a lot of the people who I talk to say they're writing their counter speech for this larger reading audience. They want to either draw attention to the hatred that they see um, for example, there's a, there's a Twitter handle, um, a man named Logan Smith who runs a Twitter handle called Yes, You're Racist. Um, and he started this after um, searching on Twitter for the phrase, I'm not racist but, which of course is inevitably followed by something very racist, right? Um, and he was just kind of horrified by how many times he saw that phrase being used. So he started this Twitter handle, Yes, You're Racist, and just started retweeting everybody that he found that said, I'm not racist, but. And he has, you know, 270,000 followers or something like that. And his goal is not to change those people's mind. I mean, I think he's, he's pretty well aware that public shaming in that way is not a great way to change someone's beliefs. But it's a really good way to raise awareness that this racism exists online, right? That this kind of Um, These attitudes are are present. So I think that many people do counter speech for for reasons that are different than just trying to to change that those individual those like that small group of people and I, I do feel that it is a small but very vocal group of people right that is posting really kind of extreme things online.
0: I think that that's really interesting to think about. And I love that example that you gave. I, I found that somewhat entertaining. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think that, um, like, for me, um, it's not that I usually that I have much of a big social media presence or I'm on it very much. But um, I feel like personally, I refrain from, like, sharing most of any of my opinions on social media because, like, oh, my gosh, I don't know how someone is going to take it. Um, I don't, like, I I personally, I don't feel the need to have to share something. And I think that, um, like, for me, like, thinking it is one thing, but then putting it out into the world is another thing. So I think that's really interesting how um, your your work is, like, looking at the intentions and then the effects of it and what we can do about that. So I appreciate that.
4: Well, and I think that um, it's interesting to think about how much harder it can be, to put it out there. You know, you're saying that you can think one thing and put out something different or, or it's a different act to put that out on social media. And I think that there are a lot of people that feel really hesitant to do that. And there are lots of good reasons that you should feel hesitant to do that. I mean, there are certainly people who do this work that do, um, you know, then experience increased harassment online by the people who are posting hatred. Um, there are also the methods that we've documented that have developed to, to kind of protect counter speakers. Um, is it okay if I give another example? So there's a, a group in, um, in Sweden, it started in Sweden, um, and it was started by a woman named Mina Dennert. She is an Iranian born journalist and activist. And she, you know, in around 2016, she was really distressed by seeing what she felt like was this, a really big increase in xenophobia online. Um, this was often reference uh, directed at refugees and migrants that were coming out of Syria and the Middle East into Europe at this time. And although she had seen xenophobia and had experienced xenophobia her whole life, she felt like at this point it really felt different because she was seeing people that she thought of as good people posting these things online. And she wanted to challenge it and she tried to challenge it and when she did, the people who were posting those opinions often just turned their hatred toward her. And so she felt really overwhelmed. And so what she did was she invited a group of her friends into a closed Facebook group where they coordinated. And when they saw hatred on public Facebook pages, um, they would post links to those comment threads in their little group and they would go on together and all write counter speech at the same time. And then they would like each other's comments And if you know how Facebook's comment algorithm works, it elevates the comments that have the most engagement. So the most likes and replies. It moves them up in the comment thread. And so their goal was to like each other's comments so that the top comments on any news article were these positive, fact-based, civil comments and that they would bury the hatred at the bottom. You know, again, this is a situation then that, Adds some level of protection, it makes them feel braver to do this work. And it also has the ability to kind of sidestep some of the, the concerns about, can you change the mind of those posting hatred. They don't even really worry about what those people are thinking. They leave it alone and just focus on writing their own speech, right, and liking each other's speech. Um, This group has really taken off. They have 74,000 members in Sweden and the group is active in 13 different countries around the world. Um, So it's really really just taking off. And it's something that I just finished a digital ethnography of the group. And so many of their members talk about feeling braver doing this work as a collective group, right? They talk about um, writing the group's hashtag on their posts and putting it on like armor. That they feel like they can go into this battle um, with the group with them. You know, it's a totally different thing than when we imagine having to do this work on our own.
2: I find your point about groups really powerful, and something that I'm wondering is, I guess, there's two questions. Number one, when we talk about hate speech, what happens in the moments when hate speech is not as clearly labeled? For example, those like this. Be like, I guess, like what exactly would we consider hate speech, and what happens in the situations where hate speech is different to certain people? Um, and the second thing is that I would say the flip side to what you're saying is that group cultures and action can often promote things like cancel culture, where we see whole groups moving and perhaps countering hatred with other hatred. And so where do we draw the line between what people like the Swedish group is doing um, and something like a, a big cancel culture that could have been either like done out of about Maybe it is relevant. Maybe it is important, but also maybe it is based on like, um, on not fact, or maybe it is just group action?
4: Yeah, those are really fantastic questions. Uh, I'll deal with the the one about hate speech first. Um, and it's really hard to define hate speech. It's actually one of the reasons why um, at the Dangerous Speech Project, project we focus on the slightly different term, dangerous speech. Um, so hate speech has many different definitions depending on who is using that term in the countries that do have laws against hate speech or incitement to hatred um, their definitions are not the same right Um, social media companies define the term differently and it's kind of tricky to nail down exactly for the point that you raised that many people don't agree on what is hate speech right someone um might Feel that their free speech is what someone else sees as obvious hate speech. Someone might say this is a joke, and someone else will say, Yeah, but it's hate speech. You know, um, it's it's very, it can be a very vague term, which makes it difficult to regulate um, and makes a lot of us really hesitant to push for kind of government uh, regulations on hate speech, because we have to think who do we trust to be deciding what we should be allowed to say or not say. Right. And I always say if there's anyone, any government in the last 50 years in the U.S. that you wouldn't trust making that call for you, then we should be really hesitant about advocating for that kind of legal reform. Um, But so we use a term we we focus on on dangerous speech at my organization, which is speech that can move someone to either commit or to be more likely to commit or condone violence against members of another group. Um, and that is a little bit smaller. We think it's a more concise definition. And it's really focused on this particular kind of speech that can motivate violent action. Um, and so, so yeah, so that's, that's mostly what we study. Your second question about um, where do we draw the line or how do we prevent kind of collective action from just turning into countering hate speech with hate speech, uh, is is also really important. I can tell you the, the Swedish group and the other groups in this global network, the network is called I Am Here. So each of the groups, their names is I Am Here in the local language. Um, they have very strict rules on how they engage in counter speech. They require their members to not espouse hatred, to not um, spread rumors, to not even you know, correct someone else's grammar to not be condescending. They really try and um, set a model for the kind of speech that they want to see online. They want to set an example for discourse norms, but not every group is as kind of tightly coordinated. and, And I would even say kind of, they feel a certain kind of solidarity around those values that many online efforts do not. Also, we know that many of these collective efforts they emerge more organically in one moment. So I can tell you about the the Yes, You're Racist campaign. If you've heard of that account, you might know it because after the Charlottesville rallies uh, and riots in 2017, he posted pictures of that event and said, if you recognize any of the Nazis or neo-Nazis in this picture, let's identify them, send me their names and profiles and let's make them famous, right? And under that, Tweet. There were many comments that were trying to identify the people in those pictures, and some of them were correctly identified one person at least one person lost their job because of that post. Um, But there was also at least one person who was misidentified in that post right. Um, It was a professor at the University of Arkansas. He was not there but he was identified as being there, and he received death threats, his family received death threats, right? So in that case, you do have a situation where uh, sometimes in collective efforts, when, they, when there isn't a, a way or a desire to control them, they can get out of control quickly. And even if the person who starts that effort does not intend for it to happen, once the ball is rolling, it can be very difficult to kind of regain control. Yeah. Um, I think Divya's
3: question was really powerful, right? And I do also have, you know, fears that this notion of like the tyranny of the majority can come into play. And though in many instances it can be helpful, right, to counter hate speech or dangerous speech, there are some instances when it could, you know, promote cancel culture or, you know, not embrace nuance in the way we want it to. So my question is, you know, in many instances, we, we want hate speech to be banned, to be, you know, Publicized or be litigated. What are your thoughts on what should generally happen to hate speech or, is, or dangerous speech? And is there a point where we should draw the line when collective action retweets, you know, likes aren't simply enough?
4: I think that there is also an important distinction to be made about a government banning certain kinds of speech versus a social media company saying that this is not the place for that speech. Um, so there is a distinction to be made there, and, and again, I think we need to be very careful with um, with the idea of kind of more government involvement about speech. Now, there there are still limits. There are even limits in the U.S. There there aren't many limits in the U.S., but there are some legal limits on speech in the U.S. But I think when we look um, around the world at countries that do have strict speech laws, often they're used mostly um, to silence political opposition and minorities, right? it's very difficult to enforce speech laws um, and and easy to use them just for political gains. I think that there there are limits that can be set on speech and certainly social media companies do set those limits. I think our big problem is that they don't do it in a transparent way, right? Um, When I think about the kinds of changes I would want to make, It's not necessarily about deciding which specific pieces of speech should be allowed to be there or not, but it's about requiring um, social media companies to tell us what they're doing and how they're doing it. Right now, there is no transparency about the algorithms they use or the content that they really take down. They, They tell us that they're taking down content and they tell us their terms of service. We don't know how consistently those terms of service are being applied um, as a researcher, I can tell you it's very difficult to get permission to use data and also publish that data. Um, if you to work with a tech company, it's nearly, nearly impossible. It does happen, but it's very difficult to kind of um, see the inside and then be allowed to tell anyone what you've seen, right? Uh, so I think that when we think about regulation, we need to question who, who do we trust to be deciding what we can say and what we can't say and and more importantly pushing for that transparency so we at least know what's going on right
0: yeah and i think that there's a strange thing about hate speech is that like when someone a lot of people grow after being exposed to hate speech whether they're just reading it or they're involved in a conversation or if they're the one doing it um publicly it often results in growth not all the time mostly probably not but it does in some case and um, I think it's like an interesting um, kind of balance um, like scale um, weighing the pros and cons to having that information exposed out there to the public because um, whereas like banning hate speech through um so like social media outlets banning certain types of speech might be preventing people from going out to understanding other perspectives or maybe some people have these ideas in their head um about that that um about some sort of topic that they aren't expressing and now that's just like bottling up inside them and they need to be um they need to learn about something or just have more experience about the topic. Um, so I'm not saying that like hate speech is beneficial, um, but it's certainly like a push and pull thing, especially since we do live in a country where um, we have the right to say what we what's on our mind. Um, so it's, that's really interesting to think about. And though I, I do think that we shouldn't be necessarily allowed to make all of our thoughts public, Um, that some people like do just really need that for some sort of reason.
4: Yeah, it's a really tricky problem. I mean, if it wasn't a tricky problem, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in right now, right? I think that most of us can kind of look around and say, oh, we are not happy with this. Like whatever this is, is not good, Um, but there's not a clear path to what we should do. Or even, I don't think that there's consensus over kind of where we should land at the end of that path, right? um i think that what i'm hearing from from counter speakers who are doing this work around the world in very different contexts also which is interesting because like when you speak to counter speakers working in europe they're often horrified by the kinds of things that are allowed to be um posted and and kind of stay up in the us that they say well wouldn't you just report that i mean that's illegal it's like well not not here it's not illegal to say that um but i think that the one thing that people tend to agree on is that it's really important to make online spaces feel safe enough that dissent can be expressed, right? That one of the most important things is to keep kind of pushing back those walls to make sure that you have lots of different voices that can be represented there. Um, in my When I interviewed members of the Swedish Counterspeaking Group, many of them said that before they started, almost all of the comments they would see online were toxic, as they would describe them, right? And they all, like many of them told me these stories where they would say, I used to go online and just feel like, is this my country? Like, Does everybody believe this? Am I the one that's wrong? Is it, Has the country moved to a place where everybody thinks these terrible things? Because they didn't see their viewpoints represented online. And then they found this group of counter speakers and said, Oh my gosh, I'm not alone. There are all of these other people that feel what I feel. And I think that that's our real danger is allowing, um, you know, kind of the, the hateful voices online to become so powerful or so intimidating that people don't feel safe enough writing comments that say, hey, this isn't right. That's not true. It's not right. It's not helpful. However you want to phrase that. It's amazing how powerful just that simple sentence of hey, I don't think that's right. Like just this leaving some kind of documentation of dissent can be really powerful for someone who then isn't sure where they land on a particular topic and might encounter that conversation later, right? Um, Because lots of us learn things about political issues by looking online. And to be able to make sure we see a variety of opinions can be really important when we're thinking about moving that that movable middle, the people who haven't yet made up their minds about a topic, um, making sure that they don't move into this group of hateful speakers, right?
1: Yeah, I think another part of uh, the whole issue is that, you know, social media and, and um, these online spaces are a lot of tiny bubbles. Um, and it, sometimes it can be really, really hard to move outside that, that, uh, that bubble. I think everybody's a lot very concerned with finding the bubble that most reflects their own uh beliefs and at, at, at times that can get like very toxic um like as you, as you just said and I, another aspect of uh regulating uh hate speech that i think needs to be taken into account is how people re- will react to it i mean we had problems getting people to wear a mask during a pandemic because they said that they thought it it uh it violated their uh what do you call it, civil rights or civil liberties i think it's civil 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 liberties i think that's the term sorry i'm just being really anal about that uh yeah because they thought it violated their civil liberties um so how how would you regulate speech and you know it's it's virtually impossible and another thing would be that hate speech is always changing i mean uh, and that hate speech kind of changes with the way that we communicate with each other and that is i can guarantee you that the way we communicated in the '60s is very different from the way we communicate now. I mean, it's an entirely different place. So, uh, it's it's just this really, really big thing that you know it's kind of impossible to solve.
4: Yeah, it's really tricky. I think, especially when we think about the way that hateful speech and dangerous speech work, they're so context dependent, right? Something can be incredibly dangerous or incredibly offensive in the context of a particular group or a particular moment, that if you even just shift it to a slightly different context, it, it's completely benign and, and not offensive or not dangerous, right? And so thinking about how you would regulate that, they always say at scale, right? Regulate that at a kind of a global level or even a national level is really, really hard. Um, In some ways, that's why I really like this I am here model, right, because they don't spend as much time thinking about or worrying about who's posting the hatred or what they're saying. They're just trying to flood those spaces with facts, positive civil discourse, right, and saying, if we can fill these spaces with these kinds of comments, um, that will have an impact. And research has shown that's true, that the first comment that someone reads in a comment section has a greater chance, uh, like it has a larger impact on comments that that person will add later on. So if you read a civil positive comment first, you're more likely to add a civil positive comment later. And the same goes if you read kind of an uncivil comment, you are more likely to write a nasty comment later. And so, I mean, it's it's oversimplifying the issue but but it really sheds some light on the way this model could work right if you can just have those top comments be factual nice comments it might be able to go pretty far in in changing discourse i love your framing of civil positive
2: comments and the ability of that to change perspectives and i know that as you're wrapping up we have a lot of young people who listen to the podcast and of all ranges but what would be your advice for students when they are conducting themselves online to be the ones to be either, um, have brave counter speech or also promote and practice civil dialogue online?
4: Yeah. I mean, I, I really feel like there's a lot of reason to be hopeful. And I know that that can, that can be a hard thing to be in this day and age for lots of reasons, but, um, I think that you know first you should always make sure that you feel safe in an online conversation there are lots of situations when it might not be the best decision to enter in that conversation um especially if you just don't feel um if you yeah if you don't feel safe expressing your beliefs in that situation then you totally shouldn't um but i think also people should remember that there can be like i said great power in just standing up and saying I don't think that's right. You don't have to have all of the answers. You don't have to, if you think that there's something there that is offensive or misinformation, you don't necessarily have to know the the correct answer, right? You don't have to be able to solve the problem, but it can be really powerful just to stand up and say, that's not right. Can someone else come in here and say something, right? An invitation for someone else to to come in and do counter speech too. it's amazing how powerful that can be to someone else who might not might not be as confident. Um, and again, looking at some of these other examples, if you don't feel brave enough to do it alone, try and find some friends to do it with you. I think that that there's a possibility of that working also.
0: That's all for today, friends.
3: I'm editor Sarita Adabala signing off for all of us at Next Generation Politics. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded
0: friends, or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded. Thanks for listening.